Comics Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Webb, and with me are Dixie Cochran. Hello. And Matthew Dawkins. Olay. Oh. <laughs> that's that's a good one. Oh, I haven't had no. that one yet, I don't think. <laughs> no, no, we have one, haven't we? Check it off the list. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, this week, um, we are both come back, all, all three of us have come back from respective uh, conventions. Um, so uh, we're actually going to have one of our convention panels recorded for you. Uh, it was at Save Against Fear. We did, Dixie and I were on a panel about world building. Um, and uh, Josh Heath was nice enough to record it. Um, he's been a freelancer of ours. He's uh, got his own podcast, um, which currently escapes me. I feel so bad about that all of a sudden. Wow. Um, wow. I didn't wait yeah. to prep for the episode. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm we'll, we'll put it I'm in sorry, the show Josh. notes. Yeah, It'll we'll be in the show notes. notes. It's fine. Um, but we were slightly more prepared for the panel, so that's good. Were now, we? Uh, doesn't doesn't he do high level games? Yes, yes, he does high level games. I don't know if that's the name okay. of the podcast, though. That's why I was blanking. I'm not sure if it was the high level baked news podcast. Well, in that case, if I got it wrong, then uh, apologies, Josh. We're we're all fuck ups, <laughs> right? We'll get, we'll, <laughs> we'll get all sorted out in the show notes. Um, but at least I was slightly more prepared for um, the panel. I can't I can't vouch for Dixie, but um, <laughs> I didn't prepare for the panel at all. There we go. Um, I just uh, showed up and at, talked. As usual with these kinds of recordings, um, it was done through one microphone, um, and it was at a long table, so some audio is a bit softer than others. I did what I could to edit it to make sure that you know some people at the far ends of the table could be here better. Um, but the microphone went in front of me, so I am the loudest, which of course is normal for me. Um, and also the Q and A section, because there were questions from the audience, we couldn't hear the questions. Also, the Q and A section was just cut off at the end. We couldn't. Which is super sad because some of them were really good questions. They were. Um, we can talk about this a bit, a bit actually after the episode, if you'd like. But uh, for now, let's go ahead and dive right into the panel. All right, way to cut me off. All right, one oh four. Time to commence the awkward staring. <laughs> awkward staring commenced. Completed. Outstanding. No. Thanks a lot. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Brick by Brick panel on uh, creative world building. Uh, my name is James Kirk, and or the captain. Uh, I will be your uh, panel host, proctor person. Moderator. Moderator. Um, that's it. Moderator. Yeah, that's Panel great. host, proctor person. Yeah. <laughs> that's the whole title. Are you, are you not going to have moderate? Are we taking a test? Uh, <laughs> yes. So. Also, because I just really enjoy somebody yelling out, Proctor! <laughs> um, so, um, I'm going to introduce... Well, actually, I'll just, just let you guys introduce yourselves. I don't need to do that. You know you better than I know you. Allegedly. So, let's start at the end, sure. and uh, just come toward me. Uh, my name is Calvin Johns, and I am the owner, um, I guess, lead designer for Anthropos Games. Uh, we've got uh, a few different worlds with a few different flavors, so I think we'll be getting into that um, this panel. I'm Dixie Cochran. I'm one of the in-house developers of Onyx Path Publishing. I'm in charge of Exalted and Chronicles of Darkness lines, but I edit all of our lines. We've worked on Zion Trinity, Pugmire, all kinds of stuff. Hi, I'm Neil Raymond Price. I've written for a lot of traditional games uh, across the entire industry and, and helped build a couple core books up. From the ground up, but I do most of my work with Onyx Path, and I am the lead developer of Scion Second Edition. Uh, my name is Eddie Webb. Um, I am a freelance uh, RPG developer and video game writer. I've been working for <laughs> years, um, and I've developed a lot of, of worlds, in particular uh, my own created world, Pugma. Uh, hi, I'm Monty Cook, and I'm here <laughs> at Talus. 
<laughs> you pay me a lot more for money, Cook. <laughs> I'm super genius. I don't have to. Money Cook have Money Cook's World of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Rich Thomas, owner and uh, and uh, creative director of Onyx Path, and uh, we all. These four of us all work together. Yeah. <laughs> Knuckleheads. Yeah. Uh, I'm Doug Lewandowski, and it's awkward that I have to follow everyone here. Um, <laughs> no. I, I no. am a freelance game designer, uh, co-designed uh, Kids on Bikes, Teens in Space, both with John Gilmore, and uh, have been recently doing a bunch of smaller one-off RPGs uh, through Kickstarter. Cool. Sweet. I can honestly say that I have played games from every single one of you. Hooray! So, yeah, and enjoyed all of them. You're a man of multi All of you should be thinking or attempting the same thing then. Yes. <laughs> is, is there a bingo card? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I got this position. I feel like. <laughs> you could be a moderator next year. I would qualify for moderator. You too could be a proctor. <laughs> Just proc the hell out of me. <laughs> I think that between all of us, the bingo card has like a hundred slots on it. it yeah, it, it's, it's it. a lot so of like, you, you do have to pass the proctological exam, though. Oh, I'm again, my bag. how I got this position. Give that guy the panel, I see. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're going to be discussing uh, world building with all of these fine folks, and uh, I have a list of questions that I have totally rehearsed and not just seen for the first time five minutes ago. <laughs> We're going to start with how important are world settings in your opinion? I'll go ahead and say that really depends on the game. Yeah. Um, I think that some games, uh, things like Pugmire, for instance, mm-hmm. or Exalted, which is one that I have a lot of personal, you know, truck into, really depend on the world to kind of shape how you play and shape what you do. And then I think there are definitely quite a few role-playing games out there. Like, if you look at, you know, basic D&D 5e, they don't really talk much about the world in there right. because you get enough of a sense of it just from knowing fantasy media and knowing... and, like, making your characters. So the DM has a lot more, like, a- agency to build their own world. Right. So, you know, some... A lot of the Chronicles of Darkness games, even things I think like Kids on Bikes, are more, like, set in, like, our world. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically this. So you, you know it. You don't have to explain what the world looks like. Yeah. Yeah. To so, riff, yeah. yeah. To riff off what Dixie is saying, I generally see three different approaches taken in uh, the industry. You either have, like, uh, like a, a pamphlet, like a half-dozen page indie game where it's all about mechanics, it's all about the play experience at the table, and the world doesn't actually matter at all. And then you've got the sort of hybrid model that you see more in like Fate, you've seen a lot of other types of games where it's like, let's build the world as we go along, let's mm-hmm. build it collaboratively. And then you have the big, very designed, you know, like L5R. L5R, where it's like, come play in this world. And this, it's exciting. This, this is Rokugan. Here and, is what it is like. Play in this this way, etc. And all three of them are are they're they're not they're not. They're, I mean, they're a little incompatible, but they're not necessarily better or worse than the others. It's all about the play experience that you want to have. Um, so I also feel like uh, it's kind of a moot point to a degree because. Uh, even a, a, a game that allegedly is, is, is worldless and is a more generic system still mm-hmm. gives you an implicit understanding of the world you're playing in. Yep. Um, if you take Fate versus GURPS, for example, two systems that are designed to put any world onto them, the resulting world is going to be very different depending on which system you use. 
So like there's an emphasis on drama and action in a, a fate style game, whereas there's a focus on balance and continuity in a GURPS game. Um, so the system you use, I understand this is the mechanics panel, but I feel like the system you use does, at least by implication, give you a sense of what the world needs to be in order for that system to work effectively. I'd actually phrase that two different ways. I'd say that fate uh, it, it provides you with narrative uh, of building of the world. Sure. And GURPS's intention is to uh, Codify do the, the physics. Right. Of the, the yeah, system yeah. provides the physics. So GURPS kind of a physics engine. You throw yeah. this spear and it'll tell you exactly how far you can throw it with this strength and things like <laughs> right, that. Right, but that, that means that GURPS is a world where that kind of information right. matters. Exactly. Whereas GURPS is like, I have to throw a spear. Eh, sure, you hit him. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in fate, it's, you know, right. what happens when you do Right, that. why are you throwing the javelin? Right. And why does that matter? Yeah, exactly. Mostly I was just trying to correct you a little bit. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I appreciate you making people like a fool in front of all these people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not so much just for even like what impact it has on the game, but if we're talking about, I mean, like in the industry too, like generally people are going to buy games like something like we mentioned Kickstarter, like, you know, based on the art, based on the world. Like it sounds like, oh, I want to jump into that world. Right. Even with things like Fate, you have a world in your mind. It might not be the game that right. has it, but yep. you know, like, right. I want to play Harry Potter. How can I play a Harry Potter game? You might be right. looking through some of those um, generic or universal engines. Um, but those worlds that are going to be really important when it comes to, I mean, selling a game or getting people sort of interested in your game and world, unless you, I mean, you can say Powered by the Apocalypse or you can say Storyteller System. I mean, you can say things that people are going to recognize and say, ooh, I like these systems, so I'm attracted to that. But I think in a lot of cases, um, maybe like Eddie mentioned, I want to play in that world. And even if it's not in the game, the world is still going to be hugely important. Right. Yeah. Like if you're playing even in today's world, that's something that you want to play in. Even if it's not written in the book, that's still going to be hugely important to your play experience and to whether or not you're going to you know, purchase or interact with them mm-hmm. right. that game. I think worlds really sell a lot of games. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can sell, you know, Fate or the Pope system or whatever, but yeah. the things that people really gravitate toward tend to be, like, the specific thing for Fate yeah. or the specific version of the Fate system. I mean, we have, I mean, even for Chronicles, we have the, the base Chronicles game that does give you some setting and world information, but... It's fun. People tend to not play that as much, or they play that as like a session, and then they move on to change. Like they move on to demon, they move on to Promethean, they move on to whatever like actual, like more kind of hardcore setting they would mm-hmm. like to be playing. So yeah, like it's 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 nice to have those more generic systems or systems you can reskin, but it's definitely something you can use to build a world. And I I completely agree that it is like worlds that sell generally. That's what right. people are looking for. Justin Achille has a semi-famous quote uh, that when you get around after five years and you get together with your gaming group again, you don't talk about, oh, wow, remember that was plus one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, rem- you remember that character was amazing, and, it, and when we threw that thing into that thing, you're talking about the yeah. world. You're not talking about, and the setting, you're not talking right. about the The system. engine creates the, the stories. Yeah. But, I mean, the best thing that happened when we played D&D last night was my plus three dex bonus, right? No, the best thing that happened was the fire spell. <laughs> <laughs> What can, I, what can I say? Over and over again. Um, so what What do you guys feel like are the uh, like the most important parts of a world? Like if you're presenting a, a, a world as part of the setting, like what are what are some of the vital pieces that um, I think, need to be in place? I think the two most important parts are verisimilitude and internal consistency over believability. Because you can do all manner of fantastical things in games, and um, you can do all kinds of really, really crazy things, but um, 
you want those things to ring true to the human experience, yeah. to ring to make sense to the players at the table, and you want them to stay consistent within the world that you're building to, again, enhance that sense of verisimilitude. One, one author I look to a lot when I'm thinking about fantasy games specifically is Brandon Sanderson, um, because he is very, very, very good at actually explaining to the reader how the magic system works and then living within those rules for whatever the series is. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've read too many fantasy novels where the very end of it was something like, and then he developed a hitherto unknown power and managed to kill everything. And I'm like, this is terrible. You cheated. Like, you cheated. Like, how would you do yeah. that? Whereas Brandon Sanderson will lay out the rules, and, and, and sometimes you might forget about a rule until book three when it finally comes up, and you go... Told me that in book one. But I am no man. And yeah, <laughs> I have yeah. I have found myself sitting there reading a climactic scene, going, "Oh, but you can do the thing. You can do the thing because you told me you could do the thing 400 pages ago." And then they do the thing, and I'm like, "Ha!" Look, you did the thing. Works. But the 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 versatility and like having it be consistent is really important to me. Yep. Um, so yeah, I I agree with you. I'm gonna throw out some inspiration there. Yeah, and um, it, you know, if you don't have that kind of internal consistency it can get harmful. You need to develop a good skill as a world builder, as an editor as well, and being able to look over the sorts of things. Um, I mean, I've, I've read fantasy novels where a character talks about uh, putting his hands in his pants as he's walking down the street, um, but he's got a walking staff, and then later in the same scene, he, like, taps something with his walking staff. I'm like, well, how'd you put both hands in your pockets? Did you, like, tuck it under your arm? What did you do? a walking stick. Yeah. So the stick walks, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, walk with it. And so, um, again, like, like learning those rules and being able to build stories around those rules is effectively the same thing as building a scaffolding so you can paint a very lovely, uh, you know, lovely mural. Um, you can't paint the mural if you're just kind of like standing atop there and just doing it. It's better to have that framework to work through to develop the stories you want to play. But I, w- I would also say on the opposite side of that, the... For me, freedom in world building is incredibly, incredibly important oh, yeah. Yeah. for the for the characters. Not freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want, especially at the end, right? Like yeah. once you've been in a world for you know, if you're playing a campaign and you're in it for three years, the rules are firmly established, right? right. Mm-hmm. Gods are either going to show up to help you or not. Right. Right. Um, but having that freedom at the beginning to say, we want this to be a game where mm-hmm. there's like just a boatload of believable to some extent deus ex machina right mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. when we get in trouble I know that once in a while my god is going to step in and say no or um, magic is going to burst out at a particular point as long as that's agreed to and as long as that's part of the, the freedom of creation right right, right. Well, there you guys have it. There's only two approaches, order and chaos. <laughs> Pick one, yep. stick with it. <laughs> you were either Dr. Fate or Clarion the Witch Boy. Yeah, <laughs> you, wow. you, but you get to decide, nice, good. and that's the beauty of it. A world to be successful establishes a premise, mm-hmm. right? And then either, the, uh, as we do now in, in gaming, the, the overall group decides what's going to be the, the derivations out of that premise mm-hmm. and the variations on that. Or in, in the old days, it's each supplement would give you right. more stuff, right. and then everybody would go, "What's in the book?" So that's what we're going to do. Right. Uh, either you know that either of those things are fine, but uh, you know, old, old World of Darkness was that the setting was literally one sense: our world but darker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that was it. 
and then everything else was created as it, as we went along, and people bought into it and, and went for it as much as they yeah. and very, you know, individual tables did what they wanted, of course. Right. Well, and what's the in the grim darkness of the far future? There's nothing but war. Yeah. Like on the the front of the Warhammer 40k yeah. box, yeah. I think. I mean, granted, they have tons of lore, tons of world. Right. Yeah. But you could you exactly could pitch it. You that, could pitch that premise it you gets you to it, and that's a hell of a tag. Yeah. yeah, like so. If you can boil down your setting conceits down to a, a, a one-liner, you know it, it'll help you also develop things. Especially when you come to like really hairy questions, like how much do the supernatural creatures in these worlds deal with real-world atrocities? And some some people have a better answer for that than others. Right. Um, so but, you know, sometimes it's. I mean, it sounds like sometimes it's a marketing gimmick, right? It's like right. that's the tagline they put on the, the box. But actually, it's incredibly helpful when you're yep. creating the world mm-hmm. to have that as your guiding thing. And then, right. if you want to break off of that, you go, "Well, why do I want to break off of it? Why? Why do I want to show an Eden planet in 40k? Like, right. why do I thinking about that? Maybe this doesn't work for where I want this game to go, or maybe my idea doesn't work for what this game should be. Right." And sometimes that comes like later on in the process you would think. I mean, ideally you want to start off with that, but over time it's going to change. Like when I was developing Pugmire, you know, I had a one-sentence design philosophy, and it was very boring, a family-friendly tabletop role-playing game involving anthropomorphic dogs. Um, but then like after a couple of iterations, I realized design philosophy is be a good dog. A lot of the game stems from, at some point in time, either reinforcing or subverting that particular line. Um, so sometimes you discover that over time, but once you do, being able to crystallize that and putting it at the top of your design document or referring back to that so that way, when, like you say, when you have those hairy questions, you can go, okay, is this too far afield? Is this just getting into the weeds of things or is this actually reinforcing and establishing the world I need? And I might then even, um, I mean, you can even like take the question entirely differently. So far we've been talking about like approaches to world building and if we think of like what's important about the world, like what are the kinds of things you need to include in a world that are important to communicate to people or to you know, be innovative or creative or something, I mean, I guess when I was originally just sort of, you know, like musing or thinking on these questions, it's like, you know, what do I really think is important about the worlds I design? Um, and for me, it would be like power structures, right? How you design those power structures um, and, you know, having sort of novel experiences, what you're going to do, you know, what kinds of power structures are your players going to be playing with in the world? Um, and so for me, you know, like having a game that doesn't have capitalism in it, right? That just doesn't take that for granted. Like, even when people play D&D, it's... I mean, if you're listening yeah. to a recording of any panel I've been on, it probably comes up in any panel. Um, the fact that people just, that capitalism is implied yeah. in a late Renaissance setting <laughs> just bothers the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> and the fact that people go into stores and buy things, like, hey, I'm going to go buy a sword in a store. That's not how that worked. Yeah. That's not how that worked in the 10th century. That's not how that worked in the 16th right. century. Yep. That's not how that worked in the 18th century. Like, no one went into a store where there's, like, racks of magic items on a shelf and pulled it, and then 50 more bottles, like, you know, rolled. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just that. We need thing, four right? more potions of healing up and here. And it's hard. I mean, if Shake someone's designing you, you want to have an account. Stuff. You want to have money in your system, in your in your world. Okay, how does that function, right? What right. is money for? Right, money was only for paying taxes for thousands of years. Right, what else is money for? How do people get food? Like having the idea of power structures, I think is really important for me. And then the idea of subsistence, right? How do people get food? If you just tackle that and actually put that in your world, I think it's going to have that idea of verisimilitude, right? Right, in a way that maybe a lot of worlds just sort of leave that blank, right? They say like, you know, what do the people wear? Yeah. Or how pretty, right? That yeah, power structures and subsistence, I think, are two key important elements. I, we did a lot in Exalted. I, I absolutely think so, and I think... Um, I'm sorry. No, that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, we did, we did a lot of that in Exalted, but I also think that if you do those things wrong, it definitely harms the verisimilitude of uh, the thing. And I actually am going to cite a specific example now. Um, anybody here played Shadowrun? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Shadowrun 3rd Edition 
you start with like a certain amount of gear and it costs like a certain amount of, of, of new yen, but you start with like hundreds of thousands of new yen of cyberware, of weapons, of this and that, and then you go on adventures and like your reward is 5,000 new yen. It's like, how did your characters afford all this shit in the first place? Um, so how did they do all that? And then <laughs> someone, someone looked at the other prices in the book and realized you can make a lot more money jacking cars and selling them for scrap than you can ever make shadow running. Yeah. <laughs> like, but that's just basic math. And it's like, right. I, I feel just, like it's a metaphor for being a freelance developer. Yeah. I, think <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I would make a lot more money jacking cars. Yeah, I crap. really would. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, if you if only if you, you had that skill set, it, it harms the verisimilitude if you do it wrong. Yeah, basically. But then that's the trick. That's the skill. That's I mean, I guess you know how you make your world something that, right. that feels alive. Or... And what I mean, the other side of that is that if if what you're doing, if the verisimilitude is to get to a comfortable fantasy world you understand as a fantasy game world that we've seen in a million video games now as well because they're you know basing them off of D and D, and you do have your magic store where you can buy stuff, and that's a trope. Right. That's the kind of game you're making. Right. Yeah. And you know. people love that. Right. right. It actually bothers me a lot in video games when I'm walking around with 96,000 gold or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm like an adventurer. And I'm like, like, I've been playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey recently. And I've always got like hundreds of thousands of drachmae on me. And I'm like, how? I do have a ship. So at least maybe I could be going to my ship, I guess. The hold but, is filled with. <laughs> but like, yeah, so I think I carry 96,000 mm. drachmae all the time. Like, should I just be trading the treasures I find for stuff instead? Wouldn't that make more sense? There was like, um, yeah, there was a Skyrim mod, a full a full conversion mod called Enderal that's done by a, a German <coughs> company, and it's it's fabulous. It has its own internal world and everything. Um, but what struck me is that all, every gold piece had weight, so you couldn't carry over a certain amount. So they had banks in the world. Yeah. And then you got into um, a discussion of loans and lending rates and how right. like banks actually worked, which you're like, this is like, so. You're saying you don't have all of my money at the time. You're lending it out to other people. How does that work? And they like explained it to you. System. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it had a fractional banking system in the RPG. And then he's like, the big thing is just put all your money in this pile, and we'll keep it for you and give you a letter of credit. I'm like, right. oh, that makes sense. That's the thing. The okay. Right. Yeah. Like, and so it, it, the, you had a bank in this world, and you could actually earn interest on your, on your gold pieces if you didn't want to adventure. This panel, by the way, is now about <laughs> bitching about economics and gaming. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have changed Excellent. the panel. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Skyrim's giving me a, 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 a 0.2% interest. Yeah. But yeah. if I put it over in Final Fantasy, I get 10%. And you can, and you can make, and it's important to look at these stories and look at these types of things as not restrictions, but as ways of generating other stories and themselves. Um, one of my favorite little uh, video games in the last couple of years was a game called Reseteer, an item shop's tale, where you play someone who has inherited a magic item shop, and you have a lot of loans to pay off, and so you actually have to like stock the inventory with magic potions so the adventurers coming in can actually do it, and plan out your months in advance. And I was like, I know I'm effectively running a fantasy business, but this is really fun. <laughs> it also um, does really go back to you, the consistency, though, because if you look at Pugmire, for instance, there's not really an economy in Pugmire. No, it's right. pl- plastic is the thing that's worth stuff. You start out with a few, some, or many. Yep. That's that's all you ever really have to talk about it with. We do it a little bit more in pirates. Like there's a little bit more in the system, but it's still not like no. this costs seven plastic. Like it, it it never comes up. Right. It goes back. The thing is like you know this is not a capitalist society. It's the you're well stocked adventure, so you go off and do well stocked adventure things. You don't pay pinch anymore. Yeah. You, know, you have the, you have the backing of some kind of organization, so it's just not a factor. So I cut that mechanic out and. People were freaked out about it the first yeah. time. They're like, "How can I play D and D without money?" It's like, you totally can. 
Yeah. They didn't, you know, they, you just pulled out one, yeah. of, the, one of the bases yeah. of how they understood the games to work. And, and I, it's the number one question I still get is like, how do I run this with money? It's like, you, you don't. Dogs don't care about money. But that's uh. okay. And innovative then, and I mean, you know, for me, just having some like, you know, conceits in the game designs and stuff and having some like, you know, like real world goals or something, that idea of getting people to game outside that is then a great, you know, you're giving them experience they wouldn't get otherwise. Yep. And you're yep. actually going to then imagine and role play and live in a world where that system doesn't exist. Yep. Oh, if only we could get more people imagining yeah. what a world would look like where that system doesn't oh, wouldn't exist. Wouldn't that be great? Just don't worry about money anymore. It'd yeah. be awesome. So, yeah, get I, eight I hours sleep great. a day. I didn't realize that, <laughs> that you had done that. That's really exciting. I think that probably leads into the next question I was about to ask, which I just realized I think I'm probably going to run some kind of Gone in 60 Seconds and Shadow Run. It's more lucrative and far safer. Family Run. Too uh, fast, too furious, too <laughs> jacked. <laughs> All for the corporation. Um, so, favorite aspects of world building, you guys create your own worlds. Like, what are the parts of it that you really get excited about? Like, and some of the stuff maybe is a little more rote, but then you get to like, oh man, I get to create the deities now, you know, or like whatever it is that you're creating in your worlds. Like, what's your favorite aspect of? of My favorite part is when you get to brainstorm without thinking about the consequences yet. Oh yeah, <laughs> like that, like very first stage that everybody loves, where you're just kind of like, what Don't if we did no. this and this and this and this? Right. And this would be really cool. And we could have this, and these could do this thing, and then you, and then somebody inevitably has to, look, you know, no, we can't do that. Take you and like you're like floating in the air and just pull you back down and go, okay, like it's too much. The mechanics don't support it. Like, but it would be cool. I mean, I enjoy that too. I also think that um, I also personally enjoy once I do have some restrictions, trying to push those as hard as I can. Yeah. Um, like um, uh, uh, with 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 Bugmire, I'm gonna go back to slot because that was the one I kind of really start to finish. I worked on, um, but I decided early on I wanted to have a small rule book. I wanted to try to cram three books of D and D five e into a two hundred fifty six page book. That was tough, but it got really exciting. Like, okay, what can I pull out? It's it's like trying to strip down a car to its bare essentials so you can jack it later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like playing Shadowrun, right? Even right, yeah. Exactly. I shadow run the hell out of D and D five. <laughs> Return the system right around. Now it's a Right. <laughs> but I mean, no, it, was, it was the, okay, um, uh, you know, like I said, you know, taking the, the economy out of that and what does that change the world and how does that play out? Um, how do I streamline the system and what does that say about the world? Um, uh, I knew I wanted to have a, a morality system that wasn't alignment. It's okay, so what do I do in place of alignment? Uh, so, I mean, it, that sets up challenges for me to kind of think through and figure out, and coming up with clever solutions to that is, is really exciting afterwards, I will admit, because in the middle of it, it's banging my head against, well, how am I going to do this? Yeah. And sometimes the answer comes like that, and sometimes the answer comes a year later. Um, in the show. Right, but both times people think you're amazing and clever. It's like, cool, that one was really easy, that one was painfully hard, but at the end of the day, it's like, no, that was, I, I'm very satisfied with that chance of solving that particular creative problem. It's just the work that matters. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Uh, I, um, I guess I have two stages to that. The first is when we're trying to figure out what it is we're doing and those aha moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are good. And a lot of them do come out of the brainstorming. Yeah. Just like this fits into that so well. And, and you know, again, I'll, I'll refer to Eddie's Pugmire since we all like to talk about it. Um, it makes me feel special. It does. Uh, so that's all I get in life. Eddie, I, I review pitches from all kinds of, you know, all kinds of <laughs> ideas for games. And I look for the aha moments. And with Eddie's, it was, I was reading through, reading through, reading through, and we got to the Code of Man, yep. and Be a Good Dog, and all the other things. And that was just, whoa now, 
I'm seeing how this thing can be so special and so very, very cool. And it's funny because I kind of focused on that. Then we were in a, uh, a demo game or a pre-game or you know whatever. Oh, the playtest, yeah. Playtest game. Um, and the players all focused on that line. To be a good dog, yeah. Like there's five or six things in the code, but be, be a good, good dog. dog. Good and they were all using it in different ways. And the, and the, 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 uh, the shepherd, the, the, the healer would go, when she healed would go, be a good dog. You are now a good dog. And wah, healing would occur. And our, our big uh, uh, Leo, war, yeah. Leo uh, and just as he's fighting, he's, he's like down to one hit point and he smashes the automaton down and he stands there with the sword over his head and goes, I am a good dog! Yep. <laughs> and just sitting there going, Wow, I think we got something. Yeah, there. it was really, really, really enlightening. <laughs> uh, and and like you said, then you started to, to, to actually wean towards that that phrase. And then the second thing is adding to the verisimilitude on a visual level, mm-hmm. because that's uh, that's my background. Right. Yep. So adding things to what the what everybody's coming up with for the world. So whether it's flags, whether it's uh, symbols, like you know the freaking vampire things, um, <laughs> whether it's a language like werewolf or exalted or something like that, like coming up with an alphabet and things like that, maps, all the stuff that makes the world seem more real because you've got a visual to, to play off of as a, mm-hmm. as a player to GM. That's really where I, I actually get like really uh, real excited. Artist, because artist. So in the stuff I've been working on lately, the world building is usually the player's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, and so the most exciting part for me is when I or we, depending on who I'm working with, come up with that question that we go, yep, that's going to crystallize it for the right. player. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. So um, in Kids on Bikes, it's what rumors have you heard about the town? Right? That's oh, one of the right, big okay. ones. Uh, and surprisingly, one of the big ones was... Uh, your high school sports team's mascot is really dot dot dot. Okay, and that—that's the the Cthulhu. last <laughs> right, right, exactly. And that's the last question I think in the in the list before rumors, and um, that always is just sort of the linchpin that sets the the tone and the expectations for it. Right, we're the we're the fighting wombats. Okay, I know what kind of game we're playing. Right. Or in um, you know Colac nineteen ninety one, they're the phoenixes. You know, uh, you know where that story yeah, is going. Yep, yep, yep. Episode in, right. So, um, so yeah, that's cool. Coming up with a really great question that keys everybody in, whether they realize. No, it or that not. that really is excellent because I mean, it's not it, if it's too on the nose, then they feel like they're being led and they're gonna you know, they go, okay, we gotta say something really clever here. But if you just go, yeah, what, what's the, what's this guy? Yeah, and boom, then you get a real really good feel for what they're thinking about. I think I enjoy that a lot too when I'm coming up with uh, questionnaires for Dread. I don't know if anybody here has ever played Dread. So, one shot horror game, super cool. Um, you, you can do the same questionnaire for your whole table, or you can do like personalized questionnaires for each character that you're handing out. And that's always really fun because, like, if you make it too like narrow, it, it, it doesn't work. Right. Like, but I was playing one a while back where we were doing like at, at a summer camp, and one of the questions that my character got was like, why do you have a ring of keys to the whole camp? Mm. It didn't say who gave them to me. It didn't say anything like that. It's just like, why do you have the like skeleton key that opens all the doors? And I got to make it up. And like, mm. it could be because you're the daughter of the person who runs the camp, and it could also be because you sell them drugs. Like, you have so many options. Mine was selling them drugs. 
<laughs> I was playing the bad kid. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And, like, I, I, I love seeing questions like that that do crystallize it. I, I think I'm, I'm Pugmire, too, even. You're, like, three little statements. Yeah, it, it's, it's the one thing I can't, that I can never do. Is, yeah, yeah, like, mm-hmm. the like, way that you worded them is so great. Cause mm-hmm. It's like, here's, here's what I can never do. Here's, like, you know. Yeah. And actually, um, uh, uh, just moving more into the video games thing, but there's a lot of world building by implication you can do to a certain degree. Like, um, uh, a lot of times with video games, you have to write lots of, here's three responses to a question. You do that a lot. Yeah. Um, but the player can see all those responses, and even if they're not choosing one, to seeing the other abilities and things they can say sets up some expectations of the world. Um, so if you're playing a noirish game, uh, if you have lots of questions as your responses, that sets up one site. You know, those are the world where you can do lots of investigation and questions. Whereas if you're making lots of declarative statements about your morality, that sets up a very different kind of game. Um, and so even though the player is choosing one particular path and going on one particular path, by seeing the other things that are available, by ha- even having things that are grayed out, it's like going, you can't even ask this yet because you don't have the right class or the right stat or whatever. It still tells you a bit about the world, so it, you can also, not only with questions, but also with answers, um, set up what world building is like. And sometimes that gets really clever. It's like, oh, by saying things this way, by phrase, tweaking, twisting this word choice of phrasing it around, it can set up a really cool expectation. Yeah, and I guess, um, again, to take it, like, yeah, to, like, I guess, like, the diegetic level of, the, like, the world or something, too, having... I mean, I'm always looking for the ways to just, like, sub- subvert sort of our basic, you know, like a Western, like, northern, global northern sort of yeah. understanding yep. of things. Um, and I just think one of the examples that's kind of, um, I think, relates to some things that folks have been saying. We had, I was working with a, with a guy to help me develop the world for our game Early Dark um, years ago now. And we got to this point where we were talking about, you know, different sort of, uh, like, tribal structures, how things can be arranged, and having um, sort of, like, animal, uh, you know, affiliations and things like that, right? Not totems, but having animal affiliations for, uh, for different tribal groups. And he was like, yeah, and then if, like, this, you know, wolf meets this wolf, they, like, know that they're kindred. And I was like, well, no, obviously not. Like, if this one's a wolf, so these, now there's, like, an authenticity crisis, but which one's the real wolf? Right. And he's like, no, they would be, they would totally agree with each other. They'd be friends. Yeah. And I'm like, no. And he was thinking, it was very sort of, like, top-down, ontological, you know, like, structure of, like, oh, yeah, they're both related wolves, so they get along. I'm like, that's not how real world works, man. Yeah. And, like, and so, you know, so I'm like this, and Excellent. You know, every time we disagreed, I knew to go to whatever he didn't say. Sort of, it was a really good experience. <laughs> but it'd be like, well, here now I can sneak in a little anthropological fact about humanity that might challenge people's notions of verisimilitude, right? Because yep. that's not true. But hopefully, I can make that world lush enough in other ways where they can start roleplaying that. And realize, oh my gosh, I guess that is true. Like yep. if two of these tribes met, both believing to be like the single descendant of such and such. Now they have to duke it out, right? There isn't that sort of magical affinity, like, I know I'm good, you know you're good, let's be good together. Right. Um, and having those kinds of little things, I guess, for my favorite aspects, um, are finding little things like that. And, like, in Early Dark, the whole thing was just, you know, yeah, like not having capitalism. Let's throw that in there, not having... Um, and another thing that he and I argued about, if someone found a bunch of coins, I'm like, well, that would suck, they couldn't spend them. And he's like, yes, they could, they would go to a store and spend them. And I'm like, that's not how it works. So I'm like, why does that peasant have a sack full of gold? He would just get arrested. <laughs> and he was like, well, they couldn't do that. That's just private property. I'm like, they didn't have a notion of private property. <laughs> so we're really pushing, I mean, you can see a theme. I mean, all of, our, all, all of um, the game design and design are very just like, pushing for these sort of, um, to get people to think of human cultures in different ways. And, and Early Dark was, you know, it comes across just some like really like, you know, maybe like Conan asked, like Robert E. Howard sort of um, low fantasy game. But the whole thing is just tucked in all these little conceits of other ways to, um, to be and other ways that other cultures have been. And so I guess my like the aspects I mean again we were talking sort of like design wise and then like in world wise 
it's that like sneaking in those moments where you can really mm-hmm. get people imagining different kinds of worlds. Yeah. Right? And break those tropes. And sometimes they don't notice it. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it might be hard when they're like, this doesn't make any sense. But hopefully right. it... Um, and you mentioned like alignments, doing the same things with alignments. Yep. Um, you know, like there's no such thing as good. Right. So right. How do you make, you know, how do you make alignment systems that feel real? How do people attach themselves to values? Um, yeah, little, I guess those would be. Yeah. And especially if you do it in a way that the players end up finishing the word, you know, yeah. it's like, it's one thing if you say, this is how it is. Right. But another thing is like going, okay, here's the setup. Where do you go with it? The players go, oh, I see this is an allegory for this and blah, blah. And so they feel clever for finishing that thought. Well, yeah, because, like, Pugmire says be a good dog. It doesn't say what that means. Yeah, it's like, be a good be dog, a good but dog. what is a good dog? Like, yeah. Let me ask you a question that through the, the original ad campaign, they're all using a variation of that line. Yep. But, like, Jack's like... We're all good dogs, aren't we? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, what was, oh, I forget which one Jack. I'm not a bad dog. <laughs> not a bad dog. <laughs> right. <Good>. Therefore? <laughs> and then, like, the next game, we have to play with that because it became good dogs and excellent cats. And now, okay, now good as a qualifier quality as opposed to a morality statement. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> Well, yeah, because you, you want to be the best cat. Right, the best cat. Very different. Yep. Yeah. And, I mean, again, I guess I'll go back to that food. Just to try to, you know, keep these questions. I know you've only got four more. Uh, <laughs> uh, the idea of, I think, food it gets really often overlooked mm-hmm. in, oh, uh, food, yeah. in a lot of settings, right? Again, they just assume, like, everyone has, like, porridge and gruel or something. But showing, even, like, you know, pulling in fruits, pulling in different kinds of birds, pulling in, you know, and then how they get it. Like, did you see a farm? I love the line in Demolition Man. When he's eating that burger, like underground, it's like Sylvester Stallone and like Dennis Leary or something. Oh yeah, where he's meat like, come from? Do you yeah. see any cows anywhere? Yeah, <laughs> like and you realize it's a rat burger um, that they're eating, mm-hmm. but stuff like that. You know, if you have like a mountain community, you know, putting those things in again that just break up that sort of Western European idea of what medieval people ate or something. Yeah, totally. Um, I always find you know I love doing the research for that and looking at different biomes, different um, you know ecosystems and what foods there, what's edible, what's not. And, um, I guess can be a little and, fun thing for me. And you'll again find that defining those kinds of details and, and thinking about those kinds of things will help you flesh out your world. If you do have yeah. nothing but porridge and gruel, yeah. you've got to have a mill somewhere. Yeah. Mills were a huge source of tax in medieval yep. times. Yep. They were huge there. You've got to have a, a, a farm base capable of supporting that mill. So you've got a village right there, bam, based around this mill. And, and like, um, Even if you never mention in your game that that's all they eat, right. you can still yeah. put... The mill in there, right? Yeah. So that's Le- structure. He's out of Le- Legend of the Five Rings again uh, goes back to you, you eat a lot of rice, you eat a lot of, of, of cereal, you eat a lot of um, a lot of fish, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fish. But I, I remember one of the, one of the my favorite little setting details is that if you go up to the Dragon Clan, the Dragon Clan live in the mountains. You can't grow anything there; they're mountains. Um, and if they feed you something, they feed you mountain tuna. And there's a conspicuous lack of goats around there. Like, oh, yeah. No, oh, it's mountain tuna. It's not. I, I, I would never eat red meat. The mountain tuna, delicious. Yeah. So are the mountain oysters as well. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Broken gone mountain oyster. Mm. Broken, Broken mountain oyster. Enjoy. Broken mountain oysters. That's brutal. It's totally seafood. We're going to have editing an L5R thing soon. John Denver song. No. No, but. Now I want to break up my decks again. So that's. This is like. A bit of a tangent, because we're tangent people. But that's one of the things that's interesting about my job, is that a lot of what I do is editing. Often, I'm not the one building the world. I'm the one kind of refining the very last little bits of it. And, like, devil's in the details. Yep. I can't... One thing I do every time that I edit anything for Pugmire is I control F for the word hand. Yep. Because we pause. use the word hand when it comes to, like, will you hand me that? Although we try to just say, will you give me that? Right. We like, try to not use it at all. But, like, weapons are too pawed. They're not two-handed. Yeah. There was one time in a story where someone said that someone's hair stood on end, and I was like, 
or like something with hair raising. Oh yeah. I was like, is it fur raising? Is it fur raising? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Some dogs have hair, I guess. Right. That's, that, that's species. Which, which was my question. Do we keep hair raising? Do we keep fur raising? I, I don't know. And then, like, rats that dyed their uh, fur white. I was, like, oh, yeah. I was like, you don't dye things you bleach white. Them. You bleach them. And I have changed that in so many stories because people will be like, oh, it's their, their dyed white fur. And I'm like, bleached. Yep. It's white, it's bleached. Yep. Right. Any other color, we could use dyed. And so, like, having those little things and having someone, whether it's, you know, a copywriter like myself, you can go through and look at it and kind of pick it apart a little and go, hey, you said on page 25 that it was this way, and then I'm here on page 133 and you're saying this thing, but because you wrote those eight months apart, you right, completely forgotten. Right, you didn't think about the those, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, having someone at least read for like continuity and little stuff is really helpful when it comes to world building. Absolutely. So what, uh, what would you say, like, when you're creating a world, what motivates the creation of that world? Like, what uh, what drives you to want to make a sandbox for people to play in? Uh, you, you say that as if I could stop doing it. <laughs> do I, mean, I mean, I'm joking, but also I'm not. Like, if, 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 Why are if, you the way that you are? Right, like seriously, like if Rich said tomorrow, wrong, if Rich fired me tomorrow and my company collapsed and I had to take a day job at a bank, I would probably still be making stuff. Um, it might be for myself, it might be for my friends, it might be for like a little indie pub thing and direct RPG, but that's just, it's just who I am. It's the kind of thing I do. It's like this is what I love to do. Um, and I think uh, uh, a lot of people feel you know, similarly in the sense of like, you know, this is, they have a creative urge. And whether that's by painting or drawing or writing or creating worlds or creating role-playing games or making indie RPGs and video games or whatever, that need to create is, sometimes it's just, you, it's, it's what you do. So, I mean, it's, it's, hard to, it's a hard question to answer. We do it for the huge amounts of cash we get. Yeah, yeah we make, the, we make so, so much money. money in this dozens and dozens of dollars, yes. <laughs> yeah, I actually yeah. had that as a note in here. <laughs> Dozens of dollars. One of the great answers we didn't say. Yeah. Well, just, just to provide a counterpoint to that, I am not that kind of creative. I'm not the kind of person that's like, I've got all this stuff in me, and it's just first you take it out, and I have to write about right. it or put it on a painting or whatever. I, that's why I like editing. So for me, a lot of times, when I, when I am involved in the world-building process, when I'm involved in the brainstorming or the, or, or, or the early stages, which often I am not, but when I am, for me, I, I tend to be the voice of dissent a lot um, mm-hmm. because I... I I work with a lot of very experienced creators, yep. and sometimes they're saying things, and I'm the one going, why? And sometimes they have a valid answer. Sometimes I'm like, why does it have to be that way? I don't understand. And occasionally they'll say, oh, because of this, this, this. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. But sometimes I go, why? And they go, oh. Uh, because reasons. And, yeah. <laughs> and I go, but wouldn't it be more interesting if we didn't do that? And yeah. they're like, maybe. So, like, usually when, when I'm... When I'm world building in this way, it is as part of a team. Whether it's a team with people like uh, Neil and Megan Fitzgerald, Monica Specka, whether it's a team with like Rich and Eddie and you know whoever, like whoever I am working with on whichever project, I think it is nice. Kind of like you were saying with with your your person you're working with, like having that person to go like, yeah. no, you don't actually need that, or why do you need that? Please, de- please defend that to me, because I think over designing and like having too many ideas can be a real problem. Yeah. Um, games, really complex games can be super fun, and some people love really, really crunchy games with a zillion rules. 
but I think if you're trying to engage a wider audience, you want it to at least be intuitive. It doesn't have to be easy, but you, you want it to make sense to people. So having someone who can go like, is that mechanic necessary? Or is that thing necessary? Or is that bit of the world necessary? Because I don't see any story hooks out of it, whatever, is, is really nice. So essentially, I, I, I let all the creatives you know, spew their creative sure. everywhere, and then I show up and I go, oh, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. It's like, what about that? We'll, we'll, clean, that up. we'll clean that up after the panel, too. Yeah. Eddie, your babies are sticky. My baby is sticky. <laughs> For the, for the sandbox question, since, like I said before, a lot of what I've been working on is a sandbox for people to right. create. Yeah. And, um, I generally look for something that I don't know of another version of it. Yes. Like, if I start working on a game, and then somebody says, oh, that sounds just like this, and then I say, oh, yep, that was going to be just like that. Yep. Uh, John Gilmore introduced me to his response, which is, oh, great, now I don't have to design that. Yeah, no, that's good. yeah, that's good. Well, and sure. that's that's kind of how I feel about it. That I want to create things that create a sandbox that doesn't exist somewhere else. Yes. But if I'm creating a turtle sandbox and somebody can go buy that at Walmart, um, we should talk about purchasing things at Walmart. But right. then I don't need to create it. Right? It already exists, and if they want to play in that sandbox, they can. And sometimes it's the okay. Like if someone's asked, "What's your wish like this?" You can say, "No, but," and then that does open up some new avenues. Right. It's like it's not quite like that, and I do feel like there's some space for this different take on that same concept. Well, yeah. Every every time some other animal D and D project comes out, someone always comes to Eddie. It's just like, and goes, Eddie, they're ripping you off. They, they still what? And it's, it's like Eddie didn't invent anthropomorphic animals, and he didn't invent D and D. Yes, Aesop. Like, Aesop owes me a lot of money. Right. I hate that guy so much. But like. People can put this together in interesting and different ways. Pugmire is really cool and it has a lot of value. Redwall is also cool and has a lot of value. Mouse Guard is really cool and has a lot of value. Like there are lots of awesome anthropomorphic animal things out there. And every time there's a new Kickstarter, Eddie's usually like, "Cool, congrats! Yeah, like, go for it." Cool. And for instance, I mean, we have like Anthropos Games. We're developing a small animal game, and the yeah. whole thing is that they're not anthropomorphic. Well, yeah, yeah. they're animals. They're yeah, animals. and, and, animals. and, 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 and we were talking about it the other day, and it was like that sounds like a really cool game. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. Like, it's the idea. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that like make it new, right? I guess yeah, my, totally. Like, College creative writing courses. I said, make it new, make it yep. new. Yeah, whatever it is, make it new, right? And if that means plus Cthulhu, I mean, you do that. So that means you know, like my same. Every game turtle, plus Cthulhu. It's not a turtle. It's a seashell. It's not a turtle. It's a camel. Or right. you know, like whatever you're gonna do with that sandbox. Running a diner. Yeah, you can make Cthulhu. things. You can make things new. You're not gonna make a new thing, but you can make things new. Yep. Right. So the idea that everything's been done before, but you can do it in a different way. You're not gonna make like if you're a band that says you have no influences. You're just stupid. Yeah, yeah. You're wrong. Because it means you've been influenced passively and you don't recognize it. Right. If you're a band that says, I've got three or four influences, I want to be just like the late monkeys but with a little bit of Interpol sensibility, then I know that you're not a hack because you know where your influences are and you right. know what you're making new. You're being and, and, and you can embrace them and, and, and yeah. lead into them rather than just abstractly going, oh, I'm not quite sure what I'm influenced by. Yeah. I mean, um, and then you sound uh, like the Foo Fighters. Right. Uh, 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 Dixie was working uh, with on the, a new Chronicles Darkness game for Deviant Renegades. And so, like, I remember early on, one of the questions I asked was, like, what are your influences? And it turns out there's, like, 150 of them, you know? But, I mean, it, we started, it was, help, it was helpful to define this weird new space that we couldn't quite define. It's, okay, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Oh, and now I'm starting to see what that space looks like. One yeah. of the ways that we keep the world of Exalted, of, of creation, which is the world in Exalted, interesting, is that every time that we describe a new place, or even a place that's been described before, but we're, like, fleshing it out, we generally take two to five real-world cultures and we moosh them. And yeah. we even do that in our art nerds. Like, if, if the place is a mixture of, you know, Rome and feudal Japan, then that's what the art looks like, that's what the architecture looks like, that's what the clothes look like. 
and it keeps it fantasy, but it also keeps it close enough to stuff that people understand that they can. There's like, touchstones. Yeah, there's 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 touchstones there. They're like, oh, I know what a kimono looks like. Oh, I know what a pagoda or a temple looks like. And so, well, like, say through our notes, like, make it a little less, you know, super Japanese, make it a little more this, whatever. Um, and that's, 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 that's how we keep Exalted interesting, but it's also how we keep it rooted and, like, grounded. Yep. Yeah. Even our economy stuff, all of our culture stuff, almost all of it is like, oh, it's a mixture of this version of government from 1300 and this version from 700, and we just mush them together. And we try very hard uh, when we're looking at that to, to import what we want from the culture, but also see the things we, we do and don't want to import. And I think prejudices especially are a huge part of that. Like we talked about um, misogyny in the, the Western part of, of Exalted. And then, you know, previous editions had it as like a, a very misogynistic place. And we're like, well, it'd be more interesting if like maybe this culture had a very Avery patriarchal element but a lot of these other cultures didn't and then you can have negative stuff in the game and prejudices that's fine but you have players going to fight again but yeah it has to it has to be deliberate and it has to it can't be at the expense of someone at the table also as big as creation is saying that like the west is misogynistic is like saying all of north america and parts of central and south america are misogynistic and just saying like that like as if there Every, aren't hundreds everywhere of you ways to be misogynist. There are lots of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. But, but all of these are the exact same ones. Right. Like, they all just hate one. Everybody. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Way too many people. So what you're telling me is that dwarves hate elves because dwarves have always hated elves. Right. And look at games A, B, and C for that reason is not bad. Right. Doesn't make sense to me. So you have some rewriting to do. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the idea behind that, I mean... You know, like Neil said, I mean, the idea isn't, if it's true in the game, like, how about we start designing approaches to gaming that then say that's something bad, or yeah. or the idea of, like, you don't want to have that person at the table who just gets to be mean to somebody, because then that just underscores the fact that when you say prejudice is universal and all humans will have it, let's make this cool one between elves and dwarves, you're really just instantiating that again, and you're having people roleplay and have fun playing out prejudices, like, what? Yeah. Right? Like, why it's do we want to do that? Like, and maybe you can say, well, that's like the real world, I mean, I... I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I take issue with that, but at the same time, that idea of like, why are we still doing that? Like, the, right, it's a fantasy the, game. Well, the er example of it, why why do dwarves and elves hate each other, comes from Lord of the Rings, essentially. Yeah. And the core story of the Lord of the Rings is an elf and a, and a dwarf learning, like, oh, we have a ton in common. We're going to become right. the best of friends forever. Right. And so, like, that's they're overcoming that prejudice. So yeah. that's a way you can engineer the game to to get the desired effect. Yeah. And also, like in a fantasy world where I have a consistent group of friends who want to hang out with me and get eight <laughs> hours of sleep a night like what, if I'm able to live that kind of fantasy right yeah. I, I could pay my rent yeah. right we, yeah. we could get rid of prejudice too. that sounds pretty great right <laughs> um, and so yeah world building into what kind of world the players are going to want to live in is going to be more satisfying and, and giving them the power to change things they don't yeah do you put any stoppers like Say you have a group wants to play your game, yeah. and they answer those questions, and the questions are all racist and misogynistic. Like I mean, like yeah. answers. To the what, you know what? We're going to skip the mascot question, everybody, for this table. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, so the the first page of our rules is setting boundaries, nice. and so the table agrees to what we're comfortable playing with and what we're comfortable including in the game, but working against. Um, and we also have something in there about if you're playing in public, you need mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. You need to be conscious of very strong boundaries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and then personally, you know, I have my my stock. Obviously, we're not playing this, this, and this. And if somebody says, "Well, why is that obvious?" I say, "Thanks so much for coming." Right. We're gonna, <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you're making a choice to you know to, to I'll say this is what we are imagining this world's going to be. Correct. Right. And if you're over here, or if you're over here, over there, or whatever, outside those boundaries, right? Well, then we don't so much want you to be playing this. Right. Right. You can play this somewhere right. else. Which limits, or, you know, limit, limits the whole thing, but you're, you're making that call. Right. Yeah, and with gaming in nostalgia, which is yeah. like creating a world in and of itself, right? The nostalgics, I mean, like you were saying with economies, right? Like mm-hmm. those, those economies didn't exist back then, but when we have 1600s nostalgia, we're pretending yeah. that they did, right? Yeah. It's fine. Those never ran. 1650. That? I said the pantyhose never ran. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we don't want the past to be as crappy as it was. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we want to well, that's, that's under- like, understand that's, it our way. That's exactly yeah. it, right? Like, if we're gonna be inventing stuff anyway, um, one of the one of the lines we have in the rule book is, in a world where monsters exist, we're gonna get bogged down in like, yeah. but racism has to. Right. Like, we can just say that's not in our game. I was yeah. I was on a panel at Gen Con. I was, uh, is, are we done with the chainmail bikini? It was basically <coughs> the idea. And, uh, and there was, a, I was sitting there was with Nicole Lindros, Green Ronin, and there was an older gentleman, older than me even, I know, hard to believe. And was he, he dead? We're getting the birdies at the panel. He was a lich. He was a lich. He had a phylactery. <laughs> so, and he, <laughs> and he was questioning the idea that there would be no difference in the strength qualifier you know, bonuses for men and women. Because obviously women are weaker than men oh, on average. So therefore, on average, why would you get rid of that? You keep it in there. And that was basically Nicole's response. She's like, we're talking about a world where there are you know, people casting fireballs. <laughs> what? And we're talking about these heroes coming out to the thing. Who cares about average? Like, who cares about what would be normal in that society at that time? Based on a historical basis, care about it based on the game that we're actually making, the world we're actually making up there. You know? and so I, but he was resolute in not... I mean, he's clinging to that, like, desperately. You've got to keep those... The, it's got to be a minus, you know, whatever, whatever the thing You're is. Resolute Men get plus one. Determination plus one. can make women characters worse. It yeah. was... Yeah. But they it get was, a plus one charisma, I bet you would say, too, right? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, ladies want to play games. Isn't that the yeah. trade? I mean, I don't recall the exact rule structure, but usually you hear those in tandem. You know, I don't remember it either it's anymore. Just, it's used, been yeah. so long since I looked at this. I had a great oh. conversation. I was just at a panel down in Houston, um, and my roommate was a... that You know, we got bunked up, um, was one of the art... Well, you know, an artist guest... Um, and we had a long, he, he was talking about a panel he was on where it came up and he was feeling one way. And we had like a two and a half hour conversation sitting on the floor next to the big window overlooking the water. Um, that's where I got my NASA hat. And, uh, and it was a great conversation. And at the end, you know, he, we were like hanging out, you know, like, you know, in like the green room or whatever afterwards. And he said, oh, hey, everyone that was on that panel with me, just so you know, we had a really long talk and I get what the problem is now. And thanks for everyone talking to me and being patient. And he's like, I'm really glad that. So he still wanted to he still wanted to paint voluptuous women and that oh was no no his his painting is fantastic no he's awesome I've used his artwork he wouldn't think of it at all um, right. his stuff's very uh, transpositive very uh, very very cool um, 
Uh, he actually did a, a, an array of most significant others for a card game I did, and I was like, make half of them non-binary if you can. You right. know, like, yeah. So he's great about that. It was just, he just, you know, he was just always steeped in gaming that way, and that's what everyone right. always told him, and it, he's like, yeah, men are stronger, sort of. So it wasn't oh. like an innate prejudice. Gotcha. It was the games that made him that way. <laughs> Interesting. It's like, we could fix it. We didn't have to, I didn't have to fight against any internal, like some misogyny or whatever. It was literally the games that... This is right. lots of how these games can be so powerful, right? No, I think, like, I think you're, holding back. you're absolutely right. That's and that's one of the weird multi-layer problems with with our hobby, is that it's not just your yeah. culture, or it's not just who you hung around with and what you all agreed to when you were in high school. <laughs> They're all weak girls. Um, it, it's also the games you were also playing, and you do, and so that losing that losing that touchstone to yeah. your nostalgic past by saying, well, we're not going to play it that way anymore. Is more of a personal problem than a. I mean, you know, ultimately it turns yeah. into a prejudice, but it, yeah. that's not where it gets based and, on. And, and it's weird how it gets in your head because, like, um, I uh, growing up, I grew up in the '90s, so I played a lot of Cyberpunk 2020, I played a lot of Shadowrun yeah. as a disabled kid, and so I had these games I loved telling me, "Oh, if you take on, uh, you know, ex- uh, devices to make your life easier, you're going to become less human." Yeah. And so I've, I've resisted assisted devices for a long time. What do you mean, Lobot? Yeah, exactly. And now everyone jokes like, oh, oh you heard you lost three assets because you have cyber ears now. And it's like, I, I love the joke, but also I realized that those games set up a set, completely unintentional systemic yeah. explanation of how disabled people interact with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, That's why I like how Eclipse Face handles it a little bit better, where it is more about transhumanism and you're right. not like less human Eclipse because you're in the body of an octopus. Yeah, and also, and also Cyberpunk Coming right. from a different philosophical basis. Yeah. Uh, from yeah. the beginning. Right, but it goes back to Cyberpunk Right, for example, also walked that back really, really heavily in their new edition. It's like, cool, so they, they've learned better and trying to do better. Ultimately, the prejudices that you have, uh, you, you put in the game deliberately are a reflection of the power structures in the game, which, which goes towards uh, the point earlier um, that they're really important to, to have. I remember playing uh, uh, the, the last Deus Ex game, and they were talking about, and... Um, it, 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 you don't lose essence or anything um, by getting implanted cybernetics at all um, but there was a discussion about why there's a hate and fear and prejudice of it and one of the characters who was anti-Aug uh, made, a, made a, a pretty compelling argument to me he said you know there's a fundamental difference between um, uh, adjusting a disability or having a prosthesis and having an augmentation right. there's a difference between having, you know, replacing a damaged eye with an eye that can see perfectly and having an eye that has x-ray vision and can you know, scrutinize you so carefully it tells whether you're lying or not like that's 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 like where the prejudice comes from, and that to me was a very interesting and nuanced way of looking at it that enhanced the verisimilitude of the world. I'm like, oh, you might be misguided, but you're not you're not stupid for believing this. You're not just you know automatically hateful and bigoted. Well, you're bigoted maybe, but you right. have an internal logic behind it, and that speaks to a lot of the bigotries and the prejudices of the world itself. So it rings true to me. Um, and uh, to bring up Cyberpunk 2020 again. Uh, in in the, the most recent video game, one of the pieces of art they had out has um, a very sexualized trans person on there. And I, I remember they, they've had some missteps with the trans community before, so there was a, a, an outcry about it. But um, the art director talked about it, and I was very fascinated by her explanation of, in the future, they're not going to care so much about gender, and they're not going to care so much about sexuality but sex is still going to be a commodity. Yeah. So no matter what mm-hmm. you are, you're still being sold that way. And I was, like, I was like, that's a very interesting way to spin that premise in a way that supports your world. Right. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't matter what your gender is, but you have to look beautiful. Yeah. As you're raising and answering these questions, that's world building. Yep, yep. exactly. Yep. 
Oh, That's back to topic. <laughs> right. I, I'm, I'm going off book, so you're welcome. Woohoo! Off script. Um, Screw do, you, Chuck. Do you, <laughs> do you guys feel a, like a like an inherent amount of responsibility for providing these types of things in that world or making decisions to not have that kind of that kind of bias? Like, do you find your own biases kind of melting into that? Like, how do you? How do you approach that kind of thing? I feel like having a team is really important. Yeah. Um, and having a, 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 a like good diversity of people from different backgrounds is super important when we do a lot of this stuff. Whether it's a team of beta readers, like, because some, some people still write their, their own stuff and that's great, but still, like, having some friends who are all maybe have different perspectives to glance over it for you. Yep. Um, because I think that if you have an internalized bias that you're, especially if you have one that you're unaware of, it's going to creep in there. Especially if you're writing about the real world and you're talking, like, if you're writing urban fantasy, which is a lot of what we do, so you're writing about essentially the world, like, a lot of my bias that tends to creep in is very leftist. I have a lot of very leftist politics, and I tend to just kind of like, hey, I want to laugh at other people, but, like, maybe I shouldn't do that either, because maybe the game should appeal a little bit to everybody. So, like, my, my politics are great on my Twitter page <laughs> and on my Facebook. They don't need to always be in my game. Some games, sure. Some games need that. Yep. Some games work better with that. Yep. So, some games really don't need that, and that's fine too. We we were talking recently. Um, we have a book that, that we've been working on. Uh, I'm not gonna name names, but it, we've we've a lot of uh, queer writers on it, and that's awesome. We're so excited about that. Lots of lots of non-binary folks, lots of trans folks, like lots of people. The book got relentlessly queer because everybody put that in there, <laughs> and so we kind of got to a point where we said we actually need to like take this back a little because we're writing law RPG, we're not writing a specifically LGBT RPG. Every we're fine having the content, but we still want to represent everyone. And it got to a point where like, I, I wasn't in that book anymore as a straight woman. Like, <laughs> And like, so let's, let's let's take it back a little bit. I love that you all put that in there. That's great, because every author obviously wants to put that perspective in there, because they don't see it as much. Mm-hmm. And so we had to find that balance between, like, we don't want to tell them not to be themselves, but we also don't want the book to be like specifically an LGBT book. And some books are. Um, yeah. Road Wardens is a is an RPG that's uh, post-apocalypse queer people in the post-apocalypse basically. Yep. And that's that's the experience. Right. That's great. That's totally fine. It was what we were making at the time. Yes. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's, it's I think that your perspective's always going to creep in there a little bit. Um, keeping it subtext instead of text can be a good way to handle it yep. if you can. Uh, sometimes it can be text if you're writing a game about punks fighting fascism. You're probably going to talk about politics. Right. Turns out. (laughs) Yep. Um, But also, I mean, uh, even if you have a a marginalized viewpoint, you do also kind of have to check that as well. Like um, when I worked on Dystopia Rising, um, it's it's a post-apocalyptic game. There's a theme here. Um, But um, I I felt that uh, a post-apoc is both bad about representing disability and also a perfect time to talk about disability because if you watch The Walking Dead, people are losing eyes, they're losing hands, they're losing mobility, um, but yet everyone goes, oh, disabled people will be killed in the post-apocalypse. Like, but that doesn't match up, so let's talk about that. So Every I got... wheelchair just dies. Right, but since my disability is about uh, sensory disability, it's like, I don't know anything about mobility disability, so I have to get people on that, that have mobility disabilities on there because that's going to be a big piece of this um, and to make sure that even though it's a, a equivalent viewpoint to mine, it's not the same viewpoint as mine. Uh, so making sure that I had people who 
were in line with the same ideals but had a distinctly different viewpoint was very important to me to make sure that happened. But also, that kind of strong deep dive in disability is not going to make sense for, say, vampire. You know, because it's not, not as much, there should be some disability representation, sure, but it's not as much as a metaphor of disability as a post-apocalyptic game is going to be. Um, like, I didn't talk about disability at all in Pugmire until Pirates because, well, pirates, they have peg legs and hooks for hands. That's a good point to kind of talk about that. But again, it was more along the lines of, it is as important as you, care, as you want it to be, otherwise it is not important at all. That was all I wanted to say about it. But Didn't I knew that... Did somebody yell at me about that sidebar? Uh, well, it's like, a little too far. Yeah. It? You put it in, it just went a little too far. And I was like, let's kind of pull it back a little bit. No, 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 not, not, not you. I thought, I thought there was some person who read the manuscript and was like, well, it should be a minus one to whatever. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. One yeah. person was kind of like, there needs to be a flaw. And it's like, no. no. <laughs> that, that's not going to happen. And luckily, because I own the game, it's like, oh, cool, we're not doing that. Moving on. Yeah. But, in, but in answering those questions, you, you also still help to define a world. If you've got type 1 diabetes, you, you need insulin. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Sure. And if the apocalypse happens, what are you going to do? Right. Like, like, what are your next steps when you're that? And so... You think but that, that is a specific person's situation. That yeah. is not all disabled people. Yes, right. that's also true. <laughs> but then, and then you see, like... <clears throat> you, see, you see a reaction to that, and you can plan that in your characters and world accordingly. Uh, Chuck yeah. Wendig does that in Wanderers. Yeah. He has a character that, that desperately needs the insulin. Yeah. And all the different ways that they have to <laughs> twist and turn to get the stuff. Yep. Is, uh, right, that's is interesting. Part, part of the plot. Yeah. Well, and even like what constitutes disability, too. I mean, that. Like, no one would... I mean, I like that idea of, like, the minus one, right? Like, that someone just... I mean, I don't like the idea. I, it's interesting <laughs> that someone thinks that, right? Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, if you design worlds, like, you know, in Art Scouts of the Tiger, small animal game, there used to be gnomes. They built... It's like Breath of the Wild, but with little animals. Um, and so there's these little, like, sanctuaries and, like, shrines and stuff, you know, sort of spread out that you can find. And when you've got beavers, you've got mice, you've got rabbits, and I'm just like, yeah, they, the gnomes just built everything big enough for all the animal types. They just right. did that, you right. know, because they did. So there is no like sort of size. Size literally doesn't matter right. because the built environment does not matter, right? Right. About the size and having things like, you know, like why, why don't why don't we say someone if someone's like six foot eight, why don't we give that a minus one? No one. Right. Exactly. In the West, you know, if we're talking about you know the America cool you know gamer folks, or everybody, like, let's give this six foot eight person a minus one. Do you want to talk about a disability? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, that should be numerically put into a game, right? But because we, you know, because that has pre-existing societal value or because it right. plays the bravado of a fantasy game or something, we think that should be a plus one. And it's like, well, you think having this particular leg gives you a minus one, but having this, being, you know, 200 pounds heavier than, you know, than the average should give you a plus one. Like, you're already talking about bias. You're talking about world design. Like, break that, right? And, and, I want to explain to you why that's not the case. And, a bit of an aggression, but actually, that exact point, if you watch the uh, HBO's Andre the Giant documentary, yeah, it's like, Andre the Giant, strongest man in the world, and the whole thing is about how his physical body betrayed him and yep. made his life miserable. Over and over again. Yeah, I mean, so it's like, it was absolutely, by your definition, should yeah. be a explicit penalty, yeah. but no one sees it that way. And just trying to get me reorient, I mean, it comes from, you know, teaching anthropology and stuff too, right, but like trying to just get people to see to see that right yep. is something I put in my games right. I mean, I really try to just like, you know just just snap that out and realize why do you think having this leg is minus one? Yep. And why don't you see being six foot eight minus one? Yep. And they're like, well, because it's better. Why do you think it's? I'm better? totally stealing that by the way. Just make that. Just get it in place where they see, oh, societal values pre-exist. We've built physical spaces because of our value systems. And that's why I'm thinking that. Let's, if we're going to make a new world, let's not do that. That's Absolutely. literally the when same I'm, tactic that I use when I want to get somebody to uh, explain an offensive joke to me. Or, like, say oh, it. Oh, yeah, They'll, yeah, like, yeah. like, say something so really offensive. offensive. I'm, like, I'm like, why is that funny? Yeah. 
And like making them explain it is the best way to make them realize that it's not funny. <laughs> I can confirm being 200 pounds heavier than the average is not an advantage. Plus one. At all. Right. Yeah. But you got plus one constitution or strength or something, right? I did, yeah. I yeah. yeah drink a little more alcohol than the average. And I, and I definitely agree with everyone here. Tall people should be penalized. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Minus man. one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Baby. Well, I remember, and I mean, I don't want to... But the idea, like, I was, you know, I, I was out with my girlfriend at, at some point, I mean, years ago, not my girlfriend any longer, and we were at some place, and she's like, oh, I have to go to the restroom, and I was like, okay, yeah, and like, five minutes later, she's still there, and I'm like, what are you doing, I thought you were going to the restroom, and she's like, I don't know where it's at, and I was like, I mean, it's over there, right, and she's like, I didn't know that, and I'm six foot one, so I can see the, right. the sign, right. <laughs> over she's the five edge. foot two, and so we all, and I like, you know, I decided six. Got down and looked around and like all oh, you see are dudes' chests, right? The it's a sea of humanity. You know. It's like, oh my gosh, like how just as a thing of world, like you literally can't see the exits. Yeah. I give you a moment. Like, yeah. And I was just like, wow, right? And having those little realizations, I mean hopefully you should have yep. those every, you every month of people. your life, you should have those, right? I mean everyone should be constantly pushing and breaking and, and reforming themselves and hopefully I mean I feel stupid that it took me until I was like twenty eight or something to have that experience. I get hit right? in the That's face stupid. with backpacks at every convention I go to. Yeah. yeah. Because people walk around walk around Gen with their big ass backpacks and they walk and they turn and they turn without thinking and they smack people my height in the face. I'm also armpit height at concerts uh, and conventions. Right. Um, but, but, if you ever see me at a crowded con, I'm probably wearing six-inch platforms. It's not because they're comfortable. It's because right. I like being five foot seven. Yeah. Right. But just back to your original question is that because we're making interactive media where people can play on these roles, I do think it is important for us to think about these things because if they play these roles and come away with the wrong understanding of what it's like to be that kind of person, we have failed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so I think that we need to do our best to try to make sure that they're getting these experiences as authentically as possible within the framework of the game they're trying to play. I mean, some games, like a fantasy games, like I said, it's like... I'm playing a, a character with dark skin in a fantasy world where racism doesn't matter, then okay, I'm not going to get that authentic experience. But we've established that's why that is. But if you're playing Harlem Unbound... Right, Harlem Unbound is... Which is, is the only book I've ever seen that in the opening chapter says everyone in this book is a person of color unless otherwise specified. Um, racism is a thing. It's it, like, You are fighting against the mythos. Right. You're also fighting against racism and you're dealing with racism because sometimes you can't fight against it. Sometimes that cop's just going to put you in jail because he's white and you're black. And it's part of what Chris Baby wanted to let people understand. Right. Yep. Like when they played this game, they wanted people to feel both of the horrors. The horror of being a black person in you know, the early 1800s in New York and also the horror of fighting the mythos. Yep. And it's kind of a toss-up in that game as to which one is actually worse because one yeah. is your everyday life all the time. Yep. And the yeah, other one is a thing you dealt with maybe once. Right. Yep. I think one of the things that people, uh, game designers, but also players say a lot is, but I just want to play my game and have fun. Which, you know, or I want to make this game so people can have fun. If you want to make your game so people can have fun, that's a that's a really nice thing to do for people. Yeah. Bear in mind how the, all these questions that you're hearing here, there will be people who come to your game who cannot have fun with it right. if you haven't thought about these questions. Yep. If you haven't put yourself outside of your space and thought about what is it to sit, like to sit down at the table as... An African American man or a woman or you know whatever, um, just to say, I I I'm not in that space. I'm not, but I have to ask these questions because I want people to have fun, and that's really like that's a lot of what I look at with our games, which are a lot of times are more kitchen sink, and and have a broader range. So when you have a broader range of potential uh, interests coming into your game, how do you how do you make sure that people are actually coming and going to have fun with this for reals? Yep. Um, and not because, sure, uh, drow are dark skin, so they're they're not a racist sort of thing like that. But I could tell you for a fact that um, 
I, I've heard more of my friends who are of color talk about their concerns about that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Why are they evil? Yeah. Right. As a race, then, oh, that's somebody I can identify with. Okay, Dritz, everybody kind of like, I want to use the two swords. But, you know, it, that was across the board. That was if just, you go to yeah. do a magic system and your first thought is like white magic good, black magic bad, maybe unpack that. Yeah. Like, or if you have good and evil in your system. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Multiple relativism is a thing. If if you choose to have that kind of thing, maybe unpack which things go on which parts of the spectrum and why. Or, like, why is an entire race or people or whatever, how can entire people be evil? Because that's just not how the world works. Like... No, it's not how the world works. It can be how your world works if you're aware of... And and explicitly addressing that. Not just saying, well, of course they're evil because they're, they're evil. Or even right. worse, you know, then you can tell they're evil because they're right. <laughs> dark. But it's one thing to say, like, you know, yeah, like, they're evil because they're dark. It's another thing to say, well, this group of people were simply possessed by demons, and that's why they all act in a certain yeah. very specific right. way, right. and right. the other peoples of the world find that to be evil right. from their perspective. Right. That's, you're giving the same point, but in a much clearer, <laughs> more inclusive way. Yeah. yeah. And, and we, I mean, I was on a panel where we were talking about that, too, and it was like, well, what if someone casts, like, a delusion spell on an whatever, I mean, I don't know D&D, all that, you know, an yeah, evil sure. thing, so now it doesn't think it's evil anymore, can you cast your, you know, dispel evil against, you know, and they were, and they were getting in the layers of it, and I was like, you know how you can just get rid of that, and, you know, they were going out, so you can get rid of that by not having dumb, good and evil rules in your <laughs> right. yeah. and you don't need to have a, like, yeah. a different Once really you go down that road, d and not going to be with you on that trip. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, well, yeah, and so, I mean, well, then they kicked me out of the room, and I mean, Screw the man! Just walking back and forth and outside with your post sign. People talk about, one of my favorite examples down with the from um, on the Lord of the Rings is in right in the beginning of the two towers uh, when, you know, the Urukai and the orcs have the halflings and the orcs are like, hey, let's eat them. And the orc are like, no, no, we can't. We've got to take it back to master. And then so they end up killing the orc and he like, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. And then all these fanboys are on the internet like, oh my god, orcs have menus? Like, they're evil brutes. Like, what a stupid thing to say. It's like, well, actually, if you read the books, um, they wear waistcoats and they have a society. They use dishes. Right. The orcs aren't evil monsters. Like, D&D taught you that. Right. right. That's something that they took from Tolkien and moved. In Tolkien, the orcs are a culture. I mean, they're really bad. Right. He, he based them off of, um, you know, our rivals in World War One and Two. But, right. um, but, I mean, that whole idea of, like, they still had a culture. Like, it wasn't like in the movies where they're sitting around in armor just hanging out on the floor in Mordor. I mean, they, had, yeah. they, they did have to interact. And I think even that, I mean, he doesn't do a good job. I don't think Tolkien did a good job of world building that particular culture. Sure. But he did, I mean, they have menus, you could imagine. What yeah, it, it, like, we, right? I don't, we don't agree with necessarily what he was trying to accomplish, but he didn't think it through. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole idea of potatoes and tobacco and in an English world without America is no transatlantic slave trade. I mean, there's good things you can do by jumping into Tolkien and looking at all the biases there. Yeah. Right. Um, but that particular one, that whole idea of evil and evil people that just sit around being evil, right? And we talk about the NPCs, like, right. in a circle being evil. So we're, we're getting close to time here, but I want to give everybody uh, a chance to, like, um, your ability to offer some advice for anybody that might be at the panel today that might be creating their own world. What would you, what would you tell them as your sage wisdom and guidance? I would say create a world you would want to play in and then see if other people would agree that they would want to play in it and would feel comfortable playing in it. And if it already exists, then you don't have to make it. Um, For me, uh, be okay with getting it wrong once in a while. Um, No, it's hard for me to think of a 
popular IP now that has been around for more than 10 years who hasn't changed at some point along the way. Um, whether it's because of being more inclusive, whether it's because they just have better ideas. Um, Star Wars franchise is not remotely what it was like based on the first movie. If you watch the first movie, nothing with the rest of Star Wars. It's a very different film, as a random example. Um, so be, be willing to go, okay, that was a good decision I made five years ago, but I'm a different designer now, and I can do new things now in that same space. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> once again, just uh, internal consistency and verisimilitude are probably the two, the two most important elements to me. Um, and on the topic of, of having diverse voices, having a lot of listening to a lot of people, you may listen to someone's experience and be like, that is not the type of thing I want I want to have in my game. That's not, not, not the viewpoint we're going after. And that's sometimes okay, but when you put things in your game, you should put them in with intentionality rather than because they're their fault. Consider every, every voice. Consider every piece of it when you're putting it in there. Eddie and Neil took mine. So I was going to say something about talking to other people and also being cool with getting it wrong. So, no, I don't have any advice. Oh, see, you don't have to do that anymore. See? We read the, you don't have to design that. I am sorry. <laughs> it's okay. You just talk too long, as always. <laughs> and I've already said my stuff before, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, for, for real, though, like, doing anything collaboratively, I think, always helps. Whether it's getting your friend to read it or, you know, hiring someone to read it for money. <laughs> that's, no. that's, that's a piece of advice. Pay your freelancers. Yeah. <laughs> you hire anybody? Pay them. There you go. It, it doesn't, ha- and it doesn't always have to be in in like like a, of like a formalized amount of money. You could buy someone dinner and say, "Will you give me a half hour of your time to talk about trade this services? Thing? Trade services, mm-hmm. um, like small royalties, I think, on her smaller games." Or to say, "Hey, I'll give you a free copy of the book if you yeah. want to give me your opinion on this piece of it." I'm like, "Okay, yeah." And they're like, don't be afraid to do exactly the thing you want to do. Make the world and the game you want to make. Um, just don't worry about selling it. Make it because you really, really enjoy it, and this is the thing you've always wanted to do. Have that artistic expression. It does. You know, if you're if you're concerned about now, how do I get this out into the marketplace? Uh, you know, there's there's crowdsourcing. Crowd um, you know, there's there's Kickstarter maybe um, uh, that you can get. You can kind of try that or at least get a touch of that but it, it doesn't have to be about you making a world because you now want to be a game designer who makes a, their living being a game designer not everybody has to do that not everybody can do that yep. sometimes it's going to take you 25 years to come up with eventually your thing that's out there this is your thing um, during those 25 years you're not going to survive if you don't have something else to do so that's cool that, that's absolutely fine um, mm-hmm. some, some, some of the things we have inside of us are really just for us and, and, and a select group of friends that can share that kind of background or whatever yeah. and enjoy it mm-hmm. and if you do print it you'll then have to pay for an air conditioned storage unit every month after that so unless you unless you only go it. electronic with PDFs and print on demand right. at drive through RPG right. dot com yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I think uh we're going to call it next time. <laughs> we'll be around. Um, so chat thank you, everybody, up here for your time this afternoon and sitting down and talking with everybody. Thank you guys for coming. Um, and uh, enjoy the rest of the con, yeah? yeah feel yeah, free to come up and talk to us during the, during the con. So Any world's one path guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. I, I, I've cut Dixie off for, for an hour, 15 minutes now. That was very rude of you. It was. I'm sorry. So, what were you saying? I was, I was saying some of the questions were really good. It was really all that I had, but then you were like, we'll talk about it more, and now I don't want to talk about it.
questions were <laughs> no, really no, good, weren't they? Um, no, we did have a couple. Of, it was, there was about, I'd say six or seven people in the audience. We did get some really good questions. Um, we had more than seven out. people. There were like 10 people. I, to be fair, I did not count. It just seemed like it was, it was, it was an intimate group is what I'm saying. It, it, it was like, I actually kind of like sometimes the intimate panels because like you said, we do sometimes get good questions, good back and forth. Um, yeah, totally. And we did, we did have um, one person ask about uh, what to do when someone at the table is not quite in line with um, what you're putting down in terms of, of inclusiveness at the table. So I just some good discussion about that i mean i'll i'll, I'll say on the podcast i don't care um sure. someone had a question where they were running a streaming session and they wanted to include uh non-binary people in their npc universe as it were mm. and they thought one of their players who for what it's worth like i talked to the woman who was doing this she said like they're mostly decent persons as like a weird blind spot of theirs she thinks they can learn which is a different thing than right. someone who is just staunchly like that doesn't exist and they're wrong and you can't help them um right. uh but like she, you know i i talked to her a little bit about maybe places to go to get like non-binary folks to explain in their own words what it meant for them you know various writings on gender things like that but in the panel my 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 very first response when when she asked that was you know get better friends <laughs> like they can die right. mad about it like i don't know what to say uh because i've i've had that situation before where someone's like i i, I can't deal with gay people in my games and i'm like bye like they exist i'm not sure what you'd like me to do about that you know mm -hmm. um if that's a big problem for you then we probably shouldn't be playing together i'm not going to you know segue my game into queer erotica all of a sudden that's not going to happen because i don't segue right. anything into any kind of erotica but right. like i might say that someone and their you know same sex partner are there <laughs> like that's that's not a problem mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it's it's just the way life is so like you know i'm, I'm not sure what to say sometimes people ask questions like that um, right. Because I, I want to be helpful and give advice, but also I just want to be like get better friends. So, well, Matt, that's something that um, I, I think you and I have talked about privately about the sense that sometimes the best way for a community to thrive is to just cut off some of the, the dead ends, as it were. Um, I mean, obviously, we want as many people as possible to play our games, and, and people who are excited about our games, we want to to be excited with them. Um, but if someone's going to come in with with just strong opinions that are against the tone of what we want to do with our games it's better for everyone involved if they just don't buy them yeah you know? yeah like it's it's okay if our values aren't the same I, mm -hmm. I i don't need you know fans whose values are the exact same as mine that right. that would not i would have very few friends if that were the case um but like if somebody's values are just diametrically opposed mm -hmm. to ours or ours as a company or whatever then yeah like maybe our games aren't for you <laughs> mm. and that's fine if that's the case there's lots of other games out there if you want to you know still kind of hang out in the gaming world but like we have a lot of you know lgbtqia plus creators and writers and they're always going to want inclusiveness in the games and we're always going to want that we have people like eddie who's a disability advocate mm -hmm. so if you showed up and said like 
hey, it really bothers me that there are disabled people in DRE. Eddie's knee-jerk response is probably going to be, die mad about it. Um, yeah, later. <laughs> because <laughs> you're talking to a disabled person. Right. And I feel the same way when I'm, you know, like that, that's, that's part of how I try to try to be an ally to all my friends who are various layers of, of marginalized is by just kind of saying like, yeah, we'll put that in the game. Sure, we'll put that in the game. Let Yes, let's use gender neutral language. Let's have, you know, big tough guys that have same sex partners at home because that's a thing that happens. Let's have, you know, tall assigned male at birth non-binary people because that's not something that gets represented a lot. And I just keep trying to throw it out there. And yeah, it makes me happy. Yeah. I like inclusiveness. And that's a big part of world building for me, which I said on the panel a little bit. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the things that I like about Save Against Fear specifically as a show is that because it is a show that is geared towards um, therapeutic applications of mm -hmm. role-playing games um, and, and talking about that, there's naturally going to be as a result of that a more a sense of, of thinking about how people react to things and how people respond to things. So it's really cool to have a kind of space that thinks about those things and tries to be respectful of those things. So it's, it's, it's a nice show. And it was your first time at the show. What did you think of it? Yeah, it was really fun. So Save Against Fear is not a huge con. It's, it's, it's you know, 500 people or so in Harrisburg, yeah. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, this year, and I think previous years, it's, well, not all the time. It used to be in a game store. But now it's in kind of an empty department store. Mm -hmm. So pretty big open space, which is cool. Um, lots of gaming going on, some board games, lots of tabletop, uh, a few really cool vendors. And it's kind of interesting because it is still in a mall, so you can like walk around to the bookstore if you have a break, or you can go to the mm -hmm. food court. Um, but I I liked the people I met overall. Like I met a lot of therapists, which was really cool. Like mm -hmm. as as somebody who has benefited from therapy over the years, I, I really like meeting therapists and talking to people who are in that line of work. And everyone I met was super nice. Like, we did an escape room uh, the Thursday night with, that we were there with just all the guests. Yep. Which was really fun. Mm hmm Me and Eddie and Cynthia Sless Miller, and I'm going to forget who all else was in there, and Aloy LaSanta. Mm-hmm. And I, who was the final person? <laughs> I'm so bad with names. Oh, my God. Um, I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking it up. I'm blanking sadly. But too. we all did a Sherlock Holmes themed escape room and it was really, really, really fun. And then part of what was fun too was talking to everybody afterwards because we were there with Jack and Jen and uh, James and some of the showrunners. And, you know, they all work in, in various game design crossed with therapy related things. So uh, It was uh, Calvin Johns of Anthropos Games. Calvin was in the Sherlock room with us? I thought so, yeah. Because I talked to him a whole bunch the rest of the con and I didn't remember him being the same person that was in the Sherlock room. Either that or was, or, or was Doug, Doug Lewandowski. I don't know. I'm so bad at names and faces. I, it, I was still so focused on the puzzles, honestly, you know? <laughs> to be fair. I think it was Doug who was in the Sherlock room with us. Okay. And I mean, I think Calvin was on the panel with us. Okay. No, I could be wrong about that, too. I don't know who was in the Sherlock room with us. There was a fifth person. He was very nice. It might have been Calvin. That'd be really weird, though. So, um, Welcome uh, to Matthew, the podcast. Yeah, Matthew, maybe your memory of your convention was better than ours. <laughs> oh, you you remember me now. Um, you could have jumped in at any time and made points on anything uh, I was saying, and you did not. I was listening to you. I was wrapped. <laughs> raptor. Mm. You were a raptor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hang on, that's not the noise a raptor makes, is it? It's, I love um, that sound. What is that? That's um, where, where was I going with that? It was kind of a oh god, that's a Wookie with emphysema, isn't it? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so yeah, I was at PDXCon, uh, which is uh, Paradox Interactive's big gaming convention. I think they only do one a year. It took place in Berlin. I was there with Matt McElroy, our colleague and director of operations here at Onyx Path Publishing, as well as a man of many hats, including Drive Through RPG mm-hmm. and Flames Rising. Uh, anyway. We were at uh, PDX Con to uh, to meet with fans of our World of Darkness and specifically Vampire the Masquerade offerings. We had some wonderful meetings with with people from Paradox, with other licensees, uh, <laughs> including Epic Games, uh, Modifius, and yeah, we we got to just meet a hell of a lot of people. We were going to be running games uh, and. In a way, it's uh, it's good that Modifius were running games because we didn't really get an opportunity. We had so many people coming up to us asking about Chicago by Night, uh, Cults of the Blood Gods, and we had the full manuscripts for Cults of the Blood Gods and the Chicago folios there at the convention. Mm. Uh, and so people were just able to come up to the table and read them, and probably the most pointed thing... Uh, that I, I could take away from PDXCon is just how universally positive everyone was. And so th- there's a reason for that. When you've got a company-themed convention, people who are going to it are automatically buying into what that company has to sell. Right. Speaking pragmatically. Yeah, they wouldn't be going to PDXCon unless they liked what Paradox does. Right. And yet... Not all of them knew what Onyx Path did, but they were coming in with a sense of optimism. Whereas if you go to a mainstream gaming convention, it's quite possible you'll like some games and not like others, and you may wish to express your views of our booth that you would have done Requiem differently if you had been developer. Oh, yes. To which I have to say to you, thank you for your opinion, (laughs) with a big smile on my face. Now, yes. Anyway, uh, but we had none of that at PDXCon. It was just people who were... I either already familiar with what we were doing and loved it, or people who didn't know who we were and were just really eager to know. And so we didn't stay restricted to the world of darkness. We talked about a whole heap of games, and we had no time to run anything. Uh, we were just constantly talking to people and giving out uh, links to our backer kits, uh, where our books are on sale, so, yeah, it was a really exciting opportunity to meet some potential new fans and customers and something I'm hoping we'll do a bit more of going to uh, conventions, I guess, that aren't necessarily within our normal wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that Matt's talked a little bit about maybe spreading us out to various cons that are close to all of us. So, like, mm. I would hit up some of the, like, East Coast, Northeast cons, maybe, you know, and mm. check them out for him and, like, kind of, you know, just see see where things are to see where we want to go in the future but yeah i i find that with paradox interactive like most people that are fans of one of their games at least most of my friends that are fans of one of their games are fans of all of their games yeah like most of my friends who like crusader kings also like solaris and BattleTech. <laughs> yeah um so yeah it, it it must be cool to be in such like a positive environment where that kind of thing's going on i think save against fear was pretty positive too only because it wasn't company based at all like there wasn't an onyx path booth there was just us there you know it was just me eddie and rich and i had no pressure to run onyx path games if i didn't want to like you know i had on the schedule to run an onyx path game and then two other games one of which i worked on one of which i didn't and that's fine you can do that 
and, and I actually got to play, you, you ran a game of Parsley for me and like 11 other people. I did. I ran Parsley and it was super fun. I love Parsley. If, 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 if anybody there doesn't know what Parsley is, um, it's not spelled like the herb. It's spelled like Parsley, like P-A-R-S-E-L-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have heard of Action Castle and not Parsley. Uh, Action Castle is one of the Parsley games in which the person running the game plays the role of the computer or parser and everybody else collectively who's playing. It can be one person. It can be 100 people. They play the role of the uh, user, the like, mm-hmm. you know, player of the computer game. And so they'll give commands like go north and I'll tell them what happens when they go north. Or they'll say things like, you know, pick up house. And I'll say, you can't do that. Right. Be really sarcastic. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's super fun. I ran Action Castle 1, 2, and 3 for a group of people, and it was really, really fun. Uh, and then that that kept getting pulled out for the rest of the weekend, too, because it's, it's just a book. You just read out of it, so it's really easy to, to you know, run. Yeah, kind of at any moment. I've run it in the car for my boyfriend. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, while we were driving somewhere for an hour, I was like, "I'll run parsley in the car." All right. So, yeah, absolutely super fun. So it was. It was. It's, it's nice to hear that we all had uh, pretty positive experiences at our collective conventions. Yeah, definitely. We, we didn't talk about Rich's D and D game though. Oh, I feel didn't. like we should. I feel like people will like to hear about that. What? So. Rich invited a bunch of people, mostly the convention organizers, and then me and Eddie and Neil Price to uh, play D&D with him. And so Rich has this D&D world, I guess he's been mucking about with since like the 70s, he yeah. said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's got your typical peoples. It's got elves and humans and, you know, halflings and stuff. And then it's also got uh, duck people. Yes. Which I have to say, I was very tempted to play one, having been obsessed recently with Horrible Goose Game. Um, <laughs> I know it's untitled Goose Game, but I like being a horrible goose. Uh, and then there were like Manticoras and fre- Freights? Freights? What was yours? Freights, yeah. P H R A I N T, yeah. Which are, you know, in like insect people. Insect people. Uh, so after a little bit of waiting, we all got to play and. Uh, he, he he secretly, he didn't tell us he was doing this, he ran an adventure that was first published in White Wolf Magazine number 15, I think, mm-hmm. uh, that, that he had illustrated and stuff. And, and it was wrote. just really, really cool. And, and yeah, wrote, wrote and, and, and illustrated. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, which which was really, really fun. We had two people playing ducks and they were hilarious. They had a great dynamic. Oh, yeah. Uh, Eddie and I played a, a halfling and, and Frank friend who were a lot of fun to play around with. And then, like, afterward, though, Ridge drew a picture of our party fighting a dragon, which was really cool, too. Yeah. But it was just really cool to actually get to play, like, D&D with, you know, Rich and Eddie and Neil and stuff, people that I never get to actually play games with. Mm-hmm. And then I also got to play a Pirates of Pugmire game at Eddie's table. Yep. You get to play the D&D. And that was really fun, too, because... Once again, never really get to play with my coworkers. It doesn't yeah. happen that often. We, we talked about it on the podcast before. That's something that you've not been able to do. And to be fair, it's, it's right. It's something we generally don't get a chance to do because usually it's we're so focused on the, the demos and getting new people at the table and whatnot. So it is fun to be able to reconnect and play with our friends. I mean, much like Matthew and I had played a couple games at um, uh, Dragon Meet. And that was really a lot of fun too. So, I mean, a couple of years ago. But it was it, it's nice to enjoy the things that we work on, even if it's not exactly the same yeah. games. Well, yeah, it also makes you, I think, appreciate what you do more. Like when you get to interact with it in the way that people usually interact with the end product. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I don't get to do that very often. And it's nice to, like, I, I, I wrote on Pirates of Agmire. So it was nice to sit down and play through a Pirates of Agmire adventure and mm-hmm. be like, oh, this is, this is what people are actually going to get out of it, you know? 
Absolutely. Mm. Well, yeah, when um, we... So, yeah, we played Prince's Gambit with the Onyx Path crew, of course, at the UK Games Expo, right. and that was that was great fun being able to do that, and Rich got to play the sneaky, but rather obviously, Sabatla Sombra. So obviously, Sabatla. Uh, uh, obviously. Well, but then that was very smart of him, wasn't it? Because he kind of threw himself out there as the obvious target, allowing uh, the other Sabat to just hide in plain sight. Yep. Uh, but yeah, uh, the some of the attendees at PDXCon, though they were mostly there to play video games, some of them on a grand scale, and it was just wonderful seeing so many people uh, enthusiastic about this, about their hobby. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a slightly different hobby; it's video gaming, but the uh, the pomp and ceremony around game announcements, for instance, uh, I know it's uh, so I guess off topic to Onyx Path, but. Crusader Kings 3 was announced at PDXCon. And so I was at a VIP party the night before the convention opened. Mm -hmm. And it was at the the Funkhaus, which was attached (laughs) to the... uh, It was at the convention venue. Mm -hmm. But much of the convention venue was curtained and barred off. And there was security. And I was going around with my cocktail. (laughs) And... um, and sort of snuck past security, went through some curtains, and watched the audition, <laughs> and not the audition, the rehearsal for the Crusader Kings 3 announcement. So I knew the <laughs> night before. Uh, because uh, there were a bunch of Paradox people there, some of whom I knew from when I was working up at Paradox Arctic. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were all very excited about why these monks were there. There were monks at PDXCon, oh. and they were genuine monks in robes. Wow. And uh, they just didn't know why they were there and uh, I found them all in the auditorium uh, doing uh, chanting and you couldn't hear it from the VIP party because there was a DJ playing and there was a pretty good uh, sound buffer. Apparently this place is often used as a nightclub Mm. so I guess the rooms have to be soundproof and um, they were chanting away on stage and all of a sudden this guy comes out dressed as a king and I am sure he is a games producer for Paradox, mm. and uh, he's dressed from, as the king from CK2. And yeah, he started uh, going through his. I would. I'm proud to announce Crusader Kings three, and I was just stood there, uh, <laughs> mildly <laughs> amused, uh, with with uh, drink in hand. But yeah, it was um, it was wonderful. Uh, Bloodlines Two was there, of course, and Coteries of New York, and uh, a whole bunch of video games related to World of Darkness and not related to World of Darkness. But yeah, that was great fun. I do hope to go back. I think I might be the only person who's not upset about the Bloodlines Two delay, only because I really want to finish Borderlands Three, and I haven't had as much time to play as I'd like. Right. Yeah, that's that's not the reason most people use. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but no, I, I'm just I not sad about fantastic. the delay. I'm like, I'm like, cool, I'll finish BL three, <laughs> and then maybe Borderlands yeah. two. Well, the Borderlands maybe Bloodlines two. It's really hard when people talk about Bloodlines online because people started abbreviating it BL2 to BL two and BL three, and that's the Borderlands mm. two abbreviation, right. and that has been the Borderlands yeah, two abbreviation they? for many years. <laughs> Find your abbreviation. Uh, I was at the airport. <laughs> I was at the airport and saw something called the POD booth. And I thought, there's a print-on-demand booth at uh, Burden Tegel Airport. Uh, damn it! This industry has corrupted my mind. <laughs> Wait, does that mean that our podcast app, Podbean, is a print-on-demand bean? Yes. You can print beans on demand. Are we a print-on-demand cast? 
Our next podcast. Do, oh, yeah, I suppose so. Do we work to anyone's demand, really? <laughs> that's true. We don't. I, don't, I don't print the podcast usually. That, that's our that's our new area we're going to move into. We're going to have printed podcasts. I don't think that'll do as well. <laughs> no. Isn't that just a zine? <laughs> <laughs> Badly photocopied 12 times over. I mean, it's, it's, especially with, you know, panel audio quality like we just listened to. Right, exactly. Like, there we go. The, ba- the a- panel audio quality is the zine of the audio sphere. If that's what that is. Wait, does that make this something better? Because <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. <sighs> I, I wouldn't say better. <laughs> that, that, that seems like a, a lot to live up to. Uh, it's different. Just just different. But if people wanted to chat with us about zines or Bloodlines 2 or Borderlands 3, where would they find you, Dixie? Uh, Dixie Cyanide on most social media and DixieCochran.com is my website. Matthew? They can find me on MatthewDawkins.com and they can find a lot of our uh, gaming footage and the like on twitch.tv slash theonyxpath. And you can find me at uh, pugstafia.com where you can find my works I've worked on, my social media stuff, and the like. You also find us collectively at theonyxpath.com. We have a Discord. We have a Twitch, as Matthew pointed out. Um, you find us on Twitter. We're usually pretty happy to chat on Twitter. Um, or you can leave a comment on the uh, blog for this episode. So, we're always happy to hear from you. But as always, new worlds.